chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. We've spent several weeks looking at the Antichrist. I think it was a four-week study on an introduction to the Antichrist. We're not done with him yet. We'll see more in Revelation as we continue on through this book. But today we're going to finish chapter 13. We're going to see his cohort called the False Prophet. So we're going to read starting down at verse 11 of chapter 13, Revelation, through the end of the chapter, verse 18. Revelation 13, starting at verse 11, reading down through verse 18. So if you found that, follow along as I read. The Bible says, I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him, and causes the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men, and deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive the mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. Let's have a minute of prayer before we get into our message this morning. Lord our God, we just come to you now as we look into your word, and we just ask that your spirit would guide us and help us to understand as we go through these things that you teach us. And Lord, I pray that you'd open our minds and hearts to receive the truth that you have for us from your word today. Lord, I pray that you would just work your will in our lives. Lord, may your word have power. May it do the work that you want it to do. And so may you be glorified in this time as we give you the praise for the truth that you've shared with us now. Lord, I pray that you would empower me with your spirit and give me Uh, the words that I need to say, the wisdom to teach, the strength and the voice, and may I be your instrument used to proclaim your truth today. Lord, we want to hear from you, not from a man. And so may you have the preeminence in this service and in the time that we have together. We thank you for what you're going to do now, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been having trouble with my voice this week, so hopefully it'll hold out for the next couple hours, and we'll be able to get through this. I'm just kidding. We'll, we'll go until I can't talk or until the Lord stops us. Anyway, we're at, in Revelation chapter 13. We've seen a lot about the Antichrist so far, and what we've been introduced to so far is that the Antichrist is going to be a world dictator who comes in starting as a peacemaker in Israel. He establishes a treaty with them. He gets all the nations to follow him, and he conquers whoever does not follow him. So he's a powerful political and military leader. He's empowered by Satan. He presents himself as the answer to the world's problems. After the turmoil 
um, in part by the rapture of the church and then through some of the, the uh, judgments of God that are being poured out on the earth. <clears throat> so in the first three and a half years, and we're going to see this um, as we continue through Revelation, he allows worship, not worship of himself, but he allows worship to continue. It's the apostate church. It's not the true church. It's the apostate church. The true church is gone. Okay, But he allows a false worship of God, if you will, of other gods to happen in the first three and a half years. We'll read about that in chapter 17 as we look at the harlot or the woman on the beast who is the false church. Okay, But he allows that. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will assert himself as the God above all gods and, and demand that everyone worship him. We saw that in the beginning of this chapter. He will blaspheme God, chapter 13 tells us, and anything that has to do with God, including Jews and believers, and anything that has to do with heaven. And then he will launch a campaign of terror against all God's people and trying to destroy them during the last three and a half years especially, because they will not worship him. He will defile the temple with what is called the desolation of abomination, Daniel tells us. And it will be some sort of idol that will be set up in the temple, which he will cause all people to worship. We just read about that in chapter 13. Now, I want to share with you this important fact of history. Almost all world powers through history have combined political and military power with religion or control over religion in their tyrannical rule. When you start to look at all the world powers that have dominated history, the same principle holds true for almost all of them. Start with Egypt. Remember, Egypt, pharaohs were tyrants. They required worship of their gods, and in fact, they were looked at as gods by the people of Egypt. You get into Babylon. Remember, Babylon was ruled by Nebuchadnezzar, when it was a world power. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who set up an image of himself or a great image that he demanded all the people bow down to and worship. And you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how they refused to do that. Okay, But Babylon, Greece, when Greece came into power, they ushered in military and political control. And Greece had a multi-god system where they had multiple gods, but you had to choose one of those gods. You couldn't worship your own God. And that's why Christians were looked at as kind of weird, and Jews for that matter, because you, they worshipped an invisible God who nobody could see. Greece had all these idols. They had these gods that were represented by uh, people or by demigods, okay? Rome was the same thing. Rome kind of adapted Greece's multi-god system, and they had the same pro- policy. If you were going to worship, worship one of these gods, And they were not necessarily happy with Jews or Christians either. Move forward into more modern history. You go all the way to England in the 17th and 18th centuries. They were a dominant world power. And excuse me, they combined their control of the world militarily with the Church of England. Okay? If you look back at Rome, Rome, again, I missed this, but Rome set up emperors and emperors then work with the popes, and you have popes who were emperors and and all of this. So you see that these world-dominating powers, if you will, combined military power with religion to control all aspects of human society. The 
one world government of the Antichrist is going to be no different, except he's going to do it to an extent that has never been done in history before. Okay? He will combine his military political power with religious power so that he will control all aspects, not just of politics and society, but of religion as well. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, the only religion that will exist is worship of him, and anything else will be prohibited. Now, ultimately, we know that Satan is behind this world domination, that he's behind all this false worship that has been perpetrated through history. But in order to secure this religious authority in the tribulation period, when he wants all people or demands all people to worship him, he brings this cohort along, this sidekick. And Satan is the one, actually, who raises up this world religious leader who comes beside the Antichrist to assist him and support him in the religious realm. The Antichrist has established himself as a political military leader, even peacemaker, uh, negotiating treaties, taking care of those who didn't abide by those treaties. But now we talk about the religious aspect of it. And Satan raises up this false prophet to kind of lead that area beside or underneath, actually, the Antichrist. And so in the second half of Revelation 13, this is who we're introduced to, this false prophet. And here he's described as the second beast who comes out of the earth. Now, why does Satan need this false prophet? Isn't the Antichrist enough? There's lots of speculations about this. Excuse me. Some commentators have said, well, we need the, the false trinity where you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now Satan is establishing a false trinity where Satan is the, the Father, if you will. And then the Antichrist represents Christ and the false prophet represents the Holy Spirit or, or some such uh, explanation. So you have to have this false trinity between these three. But more applicable, I think, is if you look at what we've already studied in Revelation, these are the reasons why, and we'll see as we study this man who comes as the false prophet, but we've already seen in Revelation, God raises up 144,000 witnesses whom he seals and protects, and they become the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world through the entire seven-year period of the tribulation. So God has his witness established in the world through them. We also saw the two special witnesses, the prophetic witnesses that God raises up, who have a supernatural ministry of proclaiming the gospel, but also bringing judgment against those who would come upon them. Remember, fire would come out from them and consume those who tried to come against them. And so we have this strong ministry of the gospel already being proclaimed And so Satan has to raise up a counterpart to those witnesses. He has to give his own counterfeit prophet to sway people with his lies away from the truth of God. And that's the purpose of this false prophet. Ultimately, Satan's goal is to deceive all people. He wants to draw them away from the truth. And his greatest weapon in that is false religion. He has done that all throughout history. Whatever he can get people to believe other than the truth of God, he doesn't care what it is as long as it's not God's truth. In fact, he will use God's truth and twist it just like Satan did at the beginning when he asked Eve, did God really say? 
But he takes God's truth, he twists it, he adds his own little spin and draws people away from the truth of the real God, the real truth of God. So Satan's ultimate goal is to deceive people, to draw them away from the truth. We looked at last week at this point that this world in the time of the tribulation is not going to be atheistic. The Antichrist is not an atheist. He is very religious. He believes in God himself as the God, and obviously Satan is his God because that's who he follows and who empowers him. But it's a very religious world that we see in the tribulation period. It's not an atheistic world. In Revelation chapter 17, when we get there, we'll see this one-world system of religion that is the false church that joins together all the religions of the world under one religion and gives them some liberty to worship in different ways as long as it meets those criteria. Of course, true worship of God is not tolerated, and we already have kind of a taste of that today where everything is tolerated except the true God. But that's the point in Revelation 17, that this false church will be allowed to exist for three and a half years. Now, at the end of the three and a half years, at the, at the midpoint, that will be abolished as well. And then the only religion that will exist is worship of the Antichrist. But you think about these people in this false church, and we're going to study this when we get to chapter 17. These are people who were churchgoers. Before the rapture, many of them probably were in church before the rapture took place. And in their minds, they were fulfilling whatever duty they had to, whatever good works they had to do, attending church, membership in a church, giving to a church. That's what God says makes me a Christian. And when the rapture happens, that's not faith. They're not going to go. And so they're left behind. Now, I don't know if many of them or if any of them will get saved, possibly, And they will come to true faith. But you still have all of these churches that exist. And they're going to be allowed to continue to exist as long as they're not teaching the truth. That's all that Satan cares about. And you know about churches like this, okay? These kinds of churches in the tribulation are still going to be there, but they're going to align themselves with this tolerant church, one world system where all religions need to be joined together in unity. Have you heard that before? We all need to come together in unity. See, we're setting the stage for what is going to happen in the time of the Antichrist and the false prophet. You know, they're going to be tolerant of other faiths and other gods. They're going to find uh, uh, um, unity in a peaceful coexistence, again, a familiar phrase, of many religions combined into one interfaith community. That is the false church of Revelation chapter 17. But we already see that happening today. We, we, I mean, you can't drive down the road. You probably have seen the coexist stickers on the back of a car. And it's got all the symbols of different faiths, including Judaism, by the way, where we all need just to unify together because we all serve the same God. We just call him by different names. That's false truth. And so these so-called Christian churches that will exist in the tribulation, exist now. And they become more like social clubs doing humanitarian work than they are followers of God carrying out the Great Commission. But those people will exist. And that is what the the Antichrist will allow. So in the tribulation, we have a very deeply religious society at the base of everything, apart from everything else that's going on. 
And that system is designed around the worship and exaltation of Satan rather than the worship of God. Satan, again, doesn't care what you worship as long as it's not God. Ultimately, if he can get you to not worship God, then you're worshiping him. Because he has all these other false gods that he will present as substance for our worship other than the true God. So chapter 17 tells us about the fall of this apostate church as the Antichrist sets himself up as the only God to be worshipped and then will destroy and go after anybody who does not worship him alone. Okay? Here we have the false prophet who assists him in that endeavor. He is the main religious power of the tribulation period. And so we're going to look at this false prophet this morning, and we see in verse 11, we're going to see, and I'm going to borrow some three points from John MacArthur on this, but not his whole sermon. I'm just going to use his titles because I wasn't clever enough to come up with anything other than these myself, but they make the point of the passage. Okay, so first we see the person of the false prophet in verse 11. The person of the false prophet, it says, and they over, I'm sorry, I'm reading wrong chapter. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. Now, here's the first question that comes to mind as we read this verse. How do we know this is a false prophet? Because that's not what it calls him here. It says he's another beast. Well, we know this is a false prophet, as defined in later portions of Revelation, because he's defined in later portions of Revelation. Okay? The false prophet is referenced here, this second beast, in chapter 16, verse 13. John says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, that's this second beast. So he's defined as the false prophet in chapter 16. Chapter 19, verse 20, the beast was taken. There's the Antichrist. With him, the false prophet that wrought miracles before him. We're going to see these miracles that he's able to do here in chapter 13. So he's defined as a false prophet in in chapter 19. In chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. So three times after this, we have this person described and defined as the false prophet. That's why we know this is who we're talking about here. It also says, as we start this verse, it says, another beast. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. The Greek word for another here means one in like kind. In other words, he's already talked about the first beast, who's a man who comes up from the nations of the world and takes over the political realm of the world. And now we have another beast, another man, like the first And every reference that we've seen after this to this other man is called the false prophet. But this is another person, okay? Someone that is raised up as a tool of Satan who is totally there to go against God and to do the bidding of Satan. And so this first verse gives us an introduction to the false prophet. He is another beast like the Antichrist. In fact, it says he has the power of the Antichrist. We'll see that in just a verse or two. So it's somebody like the Antichrist, but he's going to be second in power. Remember when Joseph went to Egypt, and after he interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams, the Pharaoh said, you're going to be second in charge. Basically, whatever you say, that's what's going to be done. I'm going to give you my ring. You basically do what you think is best. Okay? 
That's what this false prophet basically is to the Antichrist. He's the second guy in command, given power over all of the religious realm of the world, but under the, the authority of Satan and the Antichrist. So we have another beast that comes up out of the earth, John says. And it, this phrase, out of the earth, has been given several meanings. We don't know specifically what it refers to, but commentators have given some speculative um, insight into this. Some say that he will rise up out of the people of the earth, so we know that he is a person rather than a demon or a spirit or even a system. This is not a system that's coming into play. This is a person, just like the first person who is the Antichrist. In contrast to the Antichrist, some say, who rose up out of the sea, the sea represents the Gentile nations. This one comes up out of the earth, or the land, as it's read in Greek. And so some commentators actually say this means that the land refers to the land of Israel, so this person is a Jew. Now, I don't know if that's true. It's possible. Okay, again, it's speculation because we don't have all of these things defined for us, but it's possible. If he's a Jew, now we have an influential person at the top of the Antichrist government in the religious sphere who is going to persuade the one group that is having the most trouble accepting what's going on. Okay, so it's possible. He may be a Jew. I don't know. Others say this phrase, out of the earth, refers to a demon who comes out of the abyss, just like the one that inhabits the Antichrist. So this person, the false prophet, is inhabited and controlled by a demon as well, just like the Antichrist is. Now, whether all of those things are true or not, I don't know. Okay, I'm giving you people's insight into that, because it's not defined for us other than out of the earth. But those are things that we can consider. And then it says, and he has... Two horns like a lamb, in verse 11. Comes up out of the earth, he had two horns like a lamb. Now, you have already heard in Revelation references to a lamb. And that was Jesus Christ. In chapters 5 and 6, Jesus Christ is represented as the lamb. Okay? Remember, at the end of chapter 6, People are hiding in the rocks and mountains and calling them for to, to fall on them because of the judgment that comes from him that sitteth on the throne and from the Lamb. That was the words. So the Lamb is Jesus Christ. And Satan is a great counterfeiter. And so he raises up this person who comes in like a lamb, counterfeiting God's Lamb. It says he has two horns like a lamb. The horns represent ruling authority. Remember when we looked at the Antichrist, it said there was a beast with seven heads and ten horns. The horns represented the ruling authority of those ten leaders of the world that were all consolidated under the Antichrist rule. So here we have a man with authority, but it's small authority. Horns of a lamb. If you've ever seen a small lamb just getting its horns, they're like little bumps on the top of its head. They're kind of cute, aren't they? I mean, we used to go to the fair in Michigan all the time, and we'd see these lambs and these sheep, and the lambs would come right up, and, you know, they'd stick their head out of the fence, and the little horns were still fuzzy, and it's like, oh, they're so cute. And that's the picture that Satan wants us to get of this guy, the false prophet. Oh, what a nice guy. Oh, he's so gentle. He's, oh, just like a lamb. You see the deception already starting. But he has authority. So here the false prophet comes in persuading men with gentleness. 
with a false meekness. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a good guy. The Antichrist, I know he's a great military leader. I'm not going to be overbearing like him. I'm kind of the counterpart to that. The good and the bad. He, he might be the bad, but I'm the good. And I'm going to show you, as the false prophet, how good this guy really is. You just don't understand him. Now, some commentators have actually suggested that this false prophet may be the person who leads this one world church, who brings this unity of all religions in the beginning of the tribulation period. And so he's already established as a great religious leader, accepted by the religions of the world already, because he accomplished this great task that for all history of the world has not been able to be accomplished, bringing all religions together. Here, maybe this guy does it. And so he's already possibly in great leadership position as far as religiously is concerned. And because he's accepted already and he already has great influence, then all of the religions and all the churches that are left, the false churches, will just accept what he says because look at what he's done so far. Look at all the things he's taught us so far. Look how he's brought unity to all of us and different religions so far. He is a great persuader, a great teacher, and seen as a very accommodating, gentle, peacemaking person. John Phillips suggests this, that the dynamic appeal of the false prophet will lie in his skill in combining political expediency with religious passion. His arguments will be subtle, convincing, and appealing. His oratory will be hypnotic, for he will be able to move the masses to tears or whip them into a frenzy. He will control the communication media of the world and will skillfully organize mass publicity to promote its ends. He will manage the truth with guile beyond words, bending it, twisting it, and distorting it. He will mold world thought and shape human opinion like so much potter's clay. So you see the kind of person we're talking about. Someone who is a great manipulator and can cause people to believe him even though he's telling flat-out lies because he's so persuasive. Now, this person is not going to be a, a guy who comes across as an antagonist, someone who's against you. This is the person who comes in and says, oh, you know what? We need to just get together and resolve our problems. Let's just set our petty differences aside and come together in unity. Now, actually, we have people like that already on the earth. They are false prophets. This is the ultimate false prophet, but we already have false teachers. Now, I'm going to show you, look at the next phrase. He comes in like a lamb. He's got two horns like a lamb, but look at that next phrase at the end of verse 11. And it says, and he spake as a dragon. Who is the dragon? Satan himself. So he doesn't come in speaking the truth of God. He comes in with these great persuasive skills, bringing everybody together with the lies of Satan. And he causes them to believe the lie. His message is not the message of the lamb, but that of Satan the dragon. And his words are the deception of Satan. In other words, everything he teaches sounds like truth. And in fact, he may incorporate kernels and nuggets and principles of truth into his teaching. But his purpose is to draw people away from the truth because that is Satan's purpose. 
Remember, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. He called the Pharisees the children of Satan because their worship consisted in exalting themselves. That is not true worship, Jesus said. So they were the children of their father, the devil, who was the father of lies because of their worship. Now, we, you go to that extreme, and Jesus said it, not me, but you go to that extreme to say that the Pharisees, who were following the law, who were performing the sacrifices and all the rituals the way God told them in Scripture, and Jesus said, you're the children of, the sa- of Satan, the father of lies. And you can see how this false prophet will be able to convince people of lies. Now, look around. Common sense will tell you that at least half the world, or probably more, and especially governments, have gone crazy. Why? Because they don't want to follow the truth. And so they'll accept any lie that Satan puts out there for them, as long as they don't have to follow the truth and be accountable to God. And here's the situation here. But we already have this teaching in our world today. The essence of false teaching is this. And here, I believe, is what the false teacher will teach. If you accept this religion and worship as one, we'll just bring all these religions together and we'll define accommodating, tolerant worship, then you will receive all the blessings that you want out of this religion. That is false teaching. And in fact, we have a gospel called the prosperity gospel taught today that teaches exactly the same thing. If you accept God, if you take Jesus as your Savior, he will give you everything you want. That is not the truth. It teaches that worshiping God will help you get all the blessings that you want, with very little responsibility, by the way, as long as you give to their ministry. It teaches you have a divine spark within you, and that by fanning that spark and working on that divine spark, that you can literally become the essence of Jesus Christ on this earth, and therefore you can claim all the power and all the glory that the Son of God claimed. Now, I'm not making this up. You can go online, and I'm going to give you some names in a minute, and watch this. This is what they teach. You are, in essence, a little God. Isn't that what Satan said of himself? And that's what he wants people to believe. But that kind of teaching is rooted in selfishness and pride. It's all about me. And that's the very essence of Satan's message and Satan's character. It's all about me. Remember, pride was his falling point. That's what caused him to be cast out of heaven by God. And today we have celebrity pastors and teachers of megachurches teaching this false message under the guise of the gospel, which is not the gospel, it is a false gospel, and they're leading thousands of people astray. And you probably recognize some of the names, and I'm going to give you some of them. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Stephen Furtick, Bill Johnson, Robert Schuller, and more. I don't have time to name them all. But those are the prominent ones that you see on TV that you actually can go to Christian bookstores and look at the shelves, and there's hundreds, if not thousands, of their books in Christian bookstores and online in Christian bookstores that you can buy as truth from God. And yet they're teaching a false gospel. 
MacArthur says this, false prophets often appear as meek, mild, and harmless. They offer hope and solutions to the problems troubling men and women. Yet they are ever the voices of hell. And when they open their mouths, Satan speaks. And that's exactly what we see in chapter 13, verse 11 of this false prophet. When he opens his mouth, Satan speaks through him. Many in the church today have already accepted this false teaching as a standard, and so it's not going to be a giant leap to get there in the tribulation period. It's going to be one small step, because there's so many people who believe this already. So the false prophet will present himself as this humble and spiritual leader, but he speaks the message of Satan, which is total deception. Let me show you the power of this false prophet in verse 12 and 13. Verses 12 and 13 says, And he exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. I'll stop there for a second. He says he exercises all the power of the first beast. In other words, the false prophet is given the same power as the Antichrist. All the power that Satan has available, he gives to the false prophet just like he gives to the Antichrist. And yet, he's subordinate to the Antichrist, second in power. But he has the same power because he's controlled by the same demonic forces. Okay? It's still Satan in control here. And then look what he does with the power. He says he causes the earth, in the second part of verse 12, causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He has the power to make people worship the Antichrist through his deceptive words and persuasion. Now, I want you to think about what we're talking about here, okay? Because all of this has precedent. Remember, Satan is the great counterfeiter. He's going to use what God has already done and then try to counterfeit it for his own advantage. We're studying the book of Acts in Bible study, and several weeks back, we looked at Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. They record two messages, two of the first sermons, actually, that Peter preached after Pentecost. And those messages resulted in thousands of people getting saved and joining the church. But in both messages, Peter's focus is on the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that marks him as the promised Messiah and the anointed one of God. That's the key point. And you have to accept that truth in order to come to Christ. He is the anointed one of God. And it is proven through his death and resurrection, among all the other miracles, that is the key point. He is alive today. Now, Look at what the false prophet does in verse 12. He causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Let's point out the fact that this guy came back to life. Death and resurrection. That's the proving point, right? Satan counterfeits exactly what God's message is, but he uses it in deception to lead people away from God's truth. To prove his message is true, then, in verse 13, he works great wonders and miracles. Now, remember, the, Jesus Christ gave the apostles the power to do miracles, to heal people, to cast out demons, even to raise the dead, okay? In Mark chapter 16, verse 20, talking about the disciples, and they went forth and preached everywhere, and the Lord working with them and confirming the words with signs following. In other words, they confirmed that their truth was from God with these miracles that they performed. 
2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, Paul says the same thing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These were the signs of an apostle ordained by God and that their message was from God. And so the Antichrist not only uses the same type of message, but he uses the same type of proof in signs and wonders. We know Satan can counterfeit God's miracles, go all the way back to Egypt, when, when Moses went before Pharaoh and said, let my people go, there were two magicians in Pharaoh's court called Janus and Jambres, and they were able to imitate many of the things that Moses did through the power of Satan. Okay, it was not just trickery and sleight of hand. It was supernatural power given to them by Satan. And that's what we have here with the false prophet. He counterfeits God's miracles through his apostles, to prove that his lie from Satan is truth, trying to convince the world that Satan is the truth, that the Antichrist is God's anointed. And I'm here to show you that my message is true because I can do miracles just like those apostles of Jesus Christ. And look at what kind of miracles he does in verse 13. He, go, he does great wonders so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Now, who has done that in the past? We know if you study the Old Testament, Elijah on Mount Carmel, in his showdown with the prophets of Baal, knelt down after drenching the altar and the sacrifice with water, kneels down and prays, and fire comes out of heaven and consumes not just the sacrifice, but the wood, the stones, the water, everything. Fire coming down from heaven. That's God's man, right? Who's doing it here in Revelation 13? the false prophet. He calls fire down from heaven. Now, I don't know how he does this. It's a supernatural ability given to him by Satan, but it convinces people. So the false prophet uses the same type of miracles to convince men of his authority. Here's the point that I want you to pay attention to because it applies to us even today. Just because someone can do miracles and wonders does not mean they're from God. We need to pay attention to that. What is their message? What is the message they're speaking? Because if that doesn't agree with God, I don't care what they do. They're not from God. There are people today, there are teachers and leaders today who can claim who claim to be able to heal, to speak in tongues, to do mighty wonders, and yet their message does not match the message of the gospel. I've already read you some of their names. Okay? But they don't match. Their lives don't match either what Jesus said his followers would be. It's not just their message, it's their lives. What did Jesus say about his followers? He said, if any man would follow me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And then later on, he says, if any man puts his hand to the plow and turns back, I will have no pleasure in him. In other words, it's going to be a rough life if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not about you. You're not going to get a lot of things. You're not going to have an easy life. Start start looking at the lifestyles of these so-called teachers from God who do these miracles with several million-dollar houses and cars and planes and What is their message all the time? God can bless you like he's blessed me if you give me more money. 
See, that message matches exactly what both 2 Peter 2 and Jude chapter 1 confirm is the characteristic of a false teacher. They sap money out of other, I don't know, gullible people, I guess is the best word to use, unknowing people, unwise people who don't know the truth of God to make themselves rich. How do they do that? They promise you riches. They promise you blessing if you just contribute to their ministry because they're God's man, right? That's false. It's false teaching. They're false prophets. And this is exactly what the underlying of the attitude of all who worship the Antichrist will be. Why will they worship the Antichrist? Because if you don't, you're dead. That's pretty, pretty persuasive, huh? Now, not just that you're not going to be dead, but there's all kinds of good things that are going to come by worshiping this guy, the Antichrist. Keep reading, verse 14. This is his program. He causes the people to make an image of the Antichrist for worship. It says, And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of these miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. Now, for a long time, and I'm going to admit my ignorance of the Bible in my younger years, for a long time, I would read through this, and I, yeah, I, I got it, Revelation, yeah, I understand the things, and, and Satan is going to make, or the Antichrist is going to make this image of himself and set it up in the temple. It doesn't say, say or Satan is going to. It doesn't say the Antichrist is going to do this. It doesn't say the false prophet will make this image. It says the people will make this image. That's how much he's deceived them. They're going to be all in to the point where they're going to make this image. He's deceived them totally. Where do you think the money and the materials from that for that are going to come from? Not government. It says that they will make an image to the beast which had the wound by a sword and did live. They will create their own idol to worship. They're, they're literally just buying into this program lock, stock, and barrel. Now, remember that this one-world system is descended through history, through the seven major kingdoms of the world. And if you go back to Babylon, we have a precedent for this already. Here's the symbolism of what's going to happen in the tribulation. Nebuchadnezzar sets up an image and causes all people to bow down and worship it. Perfect picture of the Antichrist. So, the people will make this image. But then look at verse 15, because what happens in verse 15? He says, talking about the, the false prophet, and he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The image comes alive. He gives life to the idol. Now, the word translated life here in King James. I think if you have uh, other translations, it says breath, because that's the actual Greek word. It's pneuma. It's not other Greek words for life. It's pneuma, which is breath. It's the same root word that uh, we use for describing or defining the Holy Spirit, pneuma. Okay, But that's the word that he uses. He gives breath to this idol so that it can speak. So this idol that the people have made now comes alive to them. At least that's the way it looks. 
it comes alive in a sense that it moves and it speaks like a human being. They believe it's alive. Now, I know, and I've read a lot of different explanations and people's speculation on this. Some claim, well, with our modern robotics and the artificial intelligence we have, they could do that, make it look like a person. I mean, they have robots already that if you weren't really paying attention, you might have a hard time telling it's a robot. Okay? But here's the point. If that were the case, why would these people be so enamored with this beast that comes alive, that it's a miraculous work? The people who built it, if they built in the artificial intelligence, if they built in the mechanics for the robotics, why would this be such an amazing thing? They already know what it can do. And it doesn't say the people made it do this. It says the false prophet is given power to be able to animate this, this image, the idol. So I don't know exactly what causes the image to speak and move. Supernatural power from Satan? How about that? Because he can. That's the deception. And he says, that's part of what draws people in. He makes this idol come alive. This must be the real thing. He's got this amazing supernatural power. It has to come from God. And then he says, in verse, the end of verse 15, and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. So we're not just going to worship the beast because the beast can't be everywhere. The Antichrist can't be everywhere at one time. So we'll create this image, an idol. Now, not everybody can be where the idol is, but in today's technology, everybody almost, has cell phones. Everybody has access to the internet. You can watch live today what's happening across the world through the internet, on your cell phone, like you were standing there. Okay, we do it all the time. And so all people of the world will be able to see this image, and this is what they are going to worship. And he says, anyone who will not worship this image of the beast will be killed. Now, this is an important point. Because here is the solidification of the Antichrist as the God of the world. Now, what did Satan want? Satan wanted to be as God. The Antichrist is his representative, so really, all people are now worshiping Satan. It is the realization of his dream. The whole world is worshiping Satan, except for those who still worship the true God. There's the exception. Now, in this we actually see God, God's sovereignty still at work. Even though it seems like he's taking complete control of the world through the Antichrist, and Satan now is taking complete control of religion through the false prophet, and now he's coming to kill all the people who won't worship this image. We know that many people come through, many Christians, believing people, come through the tribulation to the beginning of Christ's Kingdom on earth, his millennial kingdom. There's 144,000 witnesses that God has already sealed and protected, and they will survive the entire time. They will not be killed. Satan cannot touch them. Okay? We already know that there's a third of the Jews that are going to be protected in God's place of refuge. They will not be killed. 
and yet they will believe in Jesus Christ. And there are many others, actually, who survive this tribulation period and come into the millennial kingdom as human beings without dying, without being glorified. Okay? So lots of people survive this killing spree of the Antichrist and the false prophet. But that's a testimony of God's goodness, his sovereignty. Because look at what the word says in verse 15. As many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. As many means all. His intent that if you don't worship the image, you will die. End of story. That's the proclamation. Does it get carried out that way? No. Because God's still in control. So no matter what agenda Satan has, no matter what power Satan has, God is still in control and can protect his people. And in verses 16 through 18, the false prophet causes all people to receive the mark of the beast on their right hand or forehead. It says, and he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred, threescore, and six. There's nobody, first of all, left out of receiving this mark if you're going to want to stay alive. If you want to stay alive, you have to receive this mark. Now, the point is this, though. It's not about worshiping. It's about staying alive. Because it says that as many as does, if you want to Uh, Verse 17, that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So in other words, you have to have this mark in order to conduct business, in order to buy things that you need to survive. It doesn't say if you don't receive the mark, he's going to kill you. It says if you don't worship him, he's going to kill you. But if you don't receive the mark, you're not automatically dead. But if you can't buy food and water, what's the assumption? You're dead. You're going to die. You're going to starve to death. But again, God's provision, he carries through the tribulation, even apart from this mandate, many people who survive, who did not receive the mark of the beast. Okay? So there's no one left out of this process that does not believe in God. Everyone who does not believe in God will receive this mark. And John Walvoord points out that John uses these contrasting pairs in describing who gets it. He says, number one, they're small and great, referring to status. No one's left out. You're either small or you're great, and everybody in between. And he says, rich and poor, that means no matter how much money or possessions you have, you could have nothing or you could have everything, you still get the mark. Or free and bond, referring to slaves, and that's talking about your state in society. Okay, If you're a, a slave, if you're a servant, if you're an employee, if you're in prison, it doesn't matter. You're going to get the mark. Okay? Now, again, Satan is the great counterfeiter. This is something that God has already done. If you go back to Ezekiel chapter 9, it talks about God looking at Israel and seeing just the enormity of sin in their worship specifically. He looks at these men who are coming to the temple, and then they go and face east and worship some unknown God. And he says, this, that's it. I'm done. He said, this sin has gotten too great. And God calls angels to him, and he tells one angel who has, is described as having an ink, a, a, a ink pen and pad, and he says, I want you to go through Jerusalem, 
And mark on their foreheads every man that bewails, that sighs and groans over the sins, this kind of sin. Because those are my true followers. And God sends his angel to mark in their forehead. Now, I don't know if it was a physical mark or if it was something spiritual, but God says, mark those people. And then the angel comes back to him and says, I've done what you've said, I've marked all those people. And then he sends out six angels to go and kill everybody else who was not marked. And the prophet um, comes to God and he says, are you going to destroy all your people? I can't believe you're doing this. And he prays, but God says, the sin is too great. But I'm marking those who are going to be protected from this purge. Remember, when God appointed the 144,000 witnesses, when he raises them up, it says he seals them in their forehead to mark them as his people. Seals them in the forehead. That means a mark of some kind. So the Antichrist and the false prophet are doing nothing more than counterfeiting, again, what God has already done. And he causes all these people to receive this mark. Now, everybody's asking this question. What is the mark? What's the mark going to be? Well, we know without it, no one's going to be able to buy or sell. So, possibly a microchip of some kind, an RFID chip that we already have in credit cards, right? You stick it in the slot, they know who you are, it takes out of your account. They can stick one of those in you. Okay? They already do that for tracking pets. In fact, the military uses that for some special services. Some big corporations implant microchips into their employees so they don't have to carry identification around. Okay? It's already possible. The technology is there. That's possibly what it could be. I'm not saying it is. But without it, you can't buy and sell. But the mark and marking someone is not something new. John MacArthur points this out, that in the ancient world, marks such as tattoos or brands were commonly given to slaves, soldiers, and devotees of religious cults. This mark will signify that the person bearing it is a worshiper and loyal follower of whoever it represents. In this case, it represents the Antichrist. So all the people who are marked, I am a loyal follower of the Antichrist. My allegiance is pledged to him. That's what these marks mean. In history... It signified that you have pledged yourself to a god or to an emperor or to some other system. And they would literally mark their skin, usually on their hand or their forehead, where people could normally easily see it and recognize that you belong to this group or to this person. That's where your allegiance was. By the way, that's where tattoos started. So it gives you a little bit of... Or the, or about the origin of tattoos. But the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to impose this mark upon everybody who will follow the Antichrist, everybody who wants to survive, who wants to be able to get food and water and housing and all of their necessities. In verse 18, it gives us a clue as to what this mark will be, 666. 666. Now, I'm not going to explain that because I've read at least 20 different explanations about what this number represents. And none of them agree. Okay, and people for the last almost 2,000 years have been trying to figure out what is this 666? What name does it represent? Who is this person? And they have put names out there where they have used some numerical formula to come to these conclusions, and it has to be this person. And it started with Nero and Caligula and all these other people I mean, through history, Hitler, Mussolini, 
You think about all the worst people in history, and they go, oh, we can figure it out, and look, 666 equals their name. Some have said, well, the 666 represents the Roman system. No, it actually says that it represents the man. It is the number of a man, verse 18, and his number is 600, three score, and six, and that man is the Antichrist. Now, how they're going to do that, I don't know. It doesn't tell us here. And so any kind of, well, it means this, is speculation. We don't have any proof from Scripture about what it's going to be, but I'll tell you this. Those people who are in the tribulation will know exactly what it means. They will know exactly what it represents, and so there's no question for them. Now, here's the good part. We don't have to worry about it unless you're not saved. Because as believers, we're not going to be there. Okay? We're going to be gone. Christ is going to come back, and he's going to take the church before all of this starts. So there's no reason for us to fear. And in fact, there's no reason for us to spend inordinate amounts of time trying to figure all these details out that aren't defined for us in Scripture. It's a waste of time. There's more important things to do in our life. In the end, those who are true believers are not going to know because we're not going to be around on earth to see it happen. The important thing for us is who is going to be going with us to heaven that we were able to give the truth so that they believed in Jesus Christ. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter who the Antichrist is going to be. It doesn't matter what this 666 is going to be. It doesn't matter who the false prophet is going to be because that's in God's prerogative. That's in his scope of things. That's not under our control, and it's not for us to have to figure out because we're not going to be part of it. But we need to do our part in trying to keep people from it, and that's what's important for us now. So the first question you have to ask is this. Am I going to end up being part of that because I don't believe in Jesus Christ now? True faith, not false gospel, true faith. Are we following Jesus Christ or are we following Satan's deception? And I already gave you all kinds of examples of the deception that's out there. Here's the final question. Are you on the Lord's side Have you accepted him and his way and his truth? Or do you want religion and the blessings of religion without submission? Because that's not true faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls that vain faith, actually. So are you on the Lord's side? Are you faithfully serving him with your life? Are you carrying out the call of the Great Commission To save, you can't save them, but you can bring the truth to as many people as you can so that they don't have to go through this. Or have you submitted to the deception of Satan and your life is all about your own pleasure, your own gain, what you get out of religion, what benefits you can get? That's a false gospel. So whose mark shows in your life from day to day? Is it the mark of Jesus Christ, or is it the mark of Satan? Because your life shows who you have allegiance to. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that even in the things of the end times and the future, we see practical applications for us today. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to take these truths to heart, that we would be serious about carrying out your calling for us, about submitting to your way for us. 
about not seeking our own benefit, but seeking your glory. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to you. Work in our hearts. Help us to do that each day as you called us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Regardless of the consequences, Lord, you are worth it all. And we praise you because you have promised us a home in heaven, a better future than any of these people will be able to experience. And we look forward to that day, but keep us faithful until you call us home. And we pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is 372, Who is on the Lord's Side? We went a little longer today, so we're just going to sing the first and the last verses, 372.